So the question is, knowing what you know about American politics, how can you possibly be positive about America's future? <laughs> okay. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today is a special episode with a sneak peek of what the Politics Girl Premium subscribers will get with our very first Ask Me Anything episode, where political warriors and champions have the opportunity to write in questions that I will answer directly as bonus content. We wanted to give everyone a chance to hear some of the perks we'll be offering to our premium subscribers, so we're dropping the very first AMA episode here today. To have access to the AMA content in the future and for the ability to ask questions, please consider becoming a Politics Girl Premium subscriber at politicsgirl.com premium to sign up for one of our subscription packages. Now, before we jump into the AMAs, it is, of course, also the 4th of July. So I thought we would start with a little history lesson around the day because it's hard to know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. Growing up in Canada, I was always a bit jealous of the patriotism I saw in our American neighbors. People were just so outwardly proud of being from this country. I mean, Canadians are proud of being Canadian, but it wasn't until recently that we did anything remotely rah-rah. America just had that we're number one thing in the bag, just waving their stars and stripes and proudly being from the land of the free and the home of the brave. But later, that star-spangled excellence you always saw on display at, say, the Olympics has veered dangerously away from patriotism into nationalism. The Trump years, with their America first rhetoric and stay out of our country nativism and its rallies full of hateful people decimating the flag code, the question of patriotism has evolved into the question of what makes an American, who has value in this country, and who does not. Under Republican policies, women are now second-class citizens, with less rights than men to their own bodies. The LGBTQ plus community is being demonized and demoralized. Immigrants are derided with Republican candidates running on closing the borders and Republican leadership passing laws to ban the teaching of black history and the Holocaust. It feels like America has been split in half. Those who proudly wave the flag while insisting American freedoms are only for some and those who believe American freedoms are for all and miss being proud of the flag. The 4th of July, also known as Independence Day, has been a federal holiday in the U.S. since 1941, but the celebration of our independence goes back to the American Revolution. We have to remember that even after violence and hostility broke out between the American colonists and the British forces in the mid-1700s, many prominent colonists were still very reluctant to break away from Britain, insisting that they were loyal subjects, even as they resisted what they saw as the king's tyrannical laws and unfair taxation. According to the History Channel, complete independence was not the original goal of those dissatisfied colonists, and those who did seek independence were often considered radicals. But then came Common Sense by Thomas Paine. This 47-page pamphlet, which was the 18th century equivalent of a paperback book, took colonial America by storm, making persuasive critical arguments for declaring independence from England. Many famous historians credit Thomas Paine's writing for inspiring the American Revolution and shifting the American sentiment toward independence. Paine argued the colonists should go beyond merely resisting British authority to encouraging them to realize that they weren't British at all. They were American. 
First published in Philadelphia in January 1776, Common Sense was part scathing commentary against the monarchy and part brilliant argument for the unique opportunity the colonists had to change the course of history by creating a new kind of government where the people were free and ruled themselves. Paine wrote, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. In modern times, Common Sense went viral, selling an estimated half a million copies that circulated throughout the 13 colonies. Thomas Jefferson's biographer wrote that Paine's writing swept through the colonies like a firestorm, destroying any final vestige of loyalty to the British crown. But unlike other American leaders who were well-educated landed gentry, Thomas Paine had come from very humble beginnings, and it was those humble beginnings where he found his voice. Paine wrote to regular people in regular language. Everyone could understand what he was saying. He was able to bridge the gap between the highbrow and the lowbrow, and he urged colonists to embrace common sense and trust their own feelings about what was right and how the country should be run, just as they did with all their other everyday decisions. Common Sense was the first published piece advocating separation from the British Empire, and people recognized themselves in Paine's arguments, even going so far as to read it aloud to each other in public, helping spread its popularity and its notoriety throughout the American colonies. The key elements in Common Sense included the idea that the government's purpose was to serve the people. The government itself was a necessary evil which existed to give people a structure so they could work together to solve problems and prosper. But Paine insisted that the government had to be responsive to the people's needs, that the British system had failed them because it gave the monarchy and the nobles in parliament too much power over the people's chosen representatives. Paine argued that having a king itself was a bad idea. He ridiculed the idea of a hereditary monarchy. He felt it was ridiculous to pay someone hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and then also be expected to worship them and then worship their offspring for the luck of their birth. It was common sense that was the first to pitch America as the home of the free. Paine didn't believe that Americans should be loyal to some mother country that he considered a bad parent. He argued that America's real connection was to the people everywhere who had left the motherland to escape oppression. His argument was that America had a rare opportunity to create a nation based on self-rule. He also believed that everyone knew it was inevitable the colonies would ultimately break free, and the time had simply come. America had all the raw materials and skills and people to run things on its own, but we had to break free while the colonies were still united, before the population grew to a point where new divisions might develop. Paine pointed out it was essential that the individual colonies put aside their differences to form a new, powerful nation, that the time was right and a new nation only gets one opportunity to take this shot, and this was it. Reading that, I wondered what Thomas Paine would think of our country now. I wondered if we're looking at a country that's gotten so big that new divisions have developed. Would he think we were now too big to be united? I hope that's not true, but that'll come down to our people's desire and our government's ability to bring us together. Which goes back to common sense. In Thomas Paine's mind, the country couldn't work together without a strong central government and a constitution to protect individuals' rights, including the freedom of religion, which many colonists really responded to because they resented being forced to pay tithes to a church that they didn't belong. Again, our founding principles are resonating today. As our country splinters with individual states taking more and more steps to strip people of their rights, we see the need for a strong central government to protect the rights of the people. 
all the people, no matter where we live or what we worship or who we love. We need new laws and maybe even new amendments to enshrine those rights into our national consciousness and stop the shredding of our individualism for the sake of top-down authoritarianism. The mass popularity of common sense made it almost impossible for colonial leaders to be wishy-washy on their stance against the British. John Adams wrote to his wife in April 1776 that common sense was like a ray of revelation, come in seasonably to clear our doubts and fix our choice. Payne's pamphlet, which promoted the idea of American exceptionalism and the need to form a new nation to realize its promise, not only attracted public support for the revolution, but put the rebellion's leaders under pressure to formally declare independence. Within a few months of its publication, the Continental Congress had instructed each colony to draft new state constitutions, an act that set the colonies clearly on the path to declaring independence. There are many historians who argue that Thomas Paine's pamphlet might have actually done more than the Declaration of Independence to unify Americans and win converts to the cause. In fact, Harvey J.K., the author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, says that during the revolution, most Americans thought common sense was the revolutionary document, not the Declaration of Independence. Some call Thomas Paine the forgotten founder, since he hasn't received as much recognition as the other important figures in the revolution. In fact, it wasn't until December of 2022 that Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin introduced a revolution to create a Thomas Paine memorial in Washington, D.C. As the Thomas Paine Memorial Association writes, the bill would authorize a statue of this overlooked hero of American independence in the nation's capital, finally righting a historic wrong. Even after America's victory over the British, Thomas Paine's influence continued, with some of his ideas finding their way into the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. When you think about his influence, it's easy to see why Thomas Jefferson considered Paine to be the best writer of the revolution. To this day, common sense continues to be read, and the ideas in it, particularly the idea of American exceptionalism, continues to resonate among new generations of Americans. We should probably note that in Paine's time, American exceptionalism was based on liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, and democracy. But over time, that's changed, and it now carries with it the implication that Americans are in some way superior to others, which is less appealing to the majority of us, but deeply appealing to about 30% of us. But back to history. On June 7, 1776, the Continental Congress met at the Pennsylvania State House, which was later called Independence Hall, in Philadelphia, and the Virginia delegate Richard Henry Lee introduced a motion for the colony's independence. As you can probably imagine, there was heated debate on the subject, so much so that the group postponed the vote on the resolution, but appointed a five-man committee to draft a formal statement that would justify breaking with Great Britain. That committee included Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, John Adams of Massachusetts, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Robert Livingston of New York. Their writing must have been very persuasive, because a month later, on July 2nd, 1776, the Continental Congress voted in favor of Lee's resolution for independence by a near-unanimous vote. At the time, the New York delegation abstained from voting, but later chose to vote yes, making it fully unanimous. That day, John Adams wrote his wife saying July 2nd will be celebrated by succeeding generations as a great anniversary festival, and that celebration should include pomp and parade, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other. 
On July 4th, the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, was largely written by Thomas Jefferson. And July 4th has been celebrated as the birth of American independence ever since. Fun fact, John Adams was pissed that we chose to celebrate on the 4th when we had voted for independence on the 2nd and would repeatedly turn down invitations to come to July 4th events in the future. Another fun fact, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on July 4th, 1826, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence was formally adopted. As far as celebrations, before the Revolution, colonists had annual celebrations on the king's birthday, which included the ringing of bells and bonfires and speech-making. In contrast, during the summer of 1776, some colonists celebrated the birth of their independence by holding mock funerals for King George as a way to symbolize the end of the monarchy's hold on America and the triumphs of liberty. Festivities of the day included concerts and bonfires and parades and the firing of cannon and muskets that were usually accompanied by public readings of the Declaration of Independence, and they began immediately after the Declaration was adopted. The first official commemoration of July 4th as Independence Day was in Philadelphia in 1777, while we were still very busy with the ongoing war. For memory's sake, the Revolutionary War wasn't actually over until 1783, when the Treaty of Paris was signed, granting the new United States of America full independence and recognizing its borders. George Washington issued double rations of rum to all his soldiers to mark the anniversary of independence in 1778, and then in 1781, several months before the Battle of Yorktown, which you might remember from Hamilton was a key American victory in the war, Massachusetts became the first state to make July 4th an official holiday. Fun fact, the first state in the Union was actually Delaware. After the Revolutionary War, Americans continued to commemorate Independence Day every year in celebrations that allowed the new nation's emerging political leaders to address citizens of the country and create a feeling of unity among all of its people. A sense of unity we could probably really work on 250 years later. And yet, perhaps there is historical precedent for division that predates even the Civil War. Because by the late 1700s, the two major political parties in America, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, began holding separate Fourth of July celebrations in many major cities. After the War of 1812, when the United States once again fought the British, the tradition of the patriotic Fourth of July celebration became even more widespread. By 1870, the U.S. Congress made July 4th a federal holiday, and by 1941, that provision was expanded to make it a paid holiday for all federal employees. Over the years, the political importance of July 4th would decline, but the symbolic importance of Independence Day remained. The most common symbols of the holiday are, no surprise, the American flag, anything red, white, and blue, and the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner which was written by Francis Scott Key, not during the American Revolution as I always thought, but in 1814, during the War of 1812. And for the record, it wasn't adopted by Congress as the national anthem until 1931. Did you know that? Because I didn't. Finally, we can't finish an overview on American Independence Day without mentioning Juneteenth, which was just celebrated on June 19th. If you didn't see my rant on that day, maybe go back and watch it, but I think it's important to mention Juneteenth here because the 4th of July, 1776, didn't include Black Americans, because at the time, Black people were still enslaved. So understandably, many Black Americans will never see July 4th as a date that symbolizes their independence or their freedom. 
June 19th, or Juneteenth, marks the day in 1865 when Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, to enforce the emancipation of the slaves, two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, a lot of people think the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in America, but it didn't. It left a lot of states out, it exempted certain parts of the Confederacy, and its entire premise was completely dependent on the Union winning the Civil War. What it did do was give the North a boost, capturing the hearts and imaginations of millions of Americans and fundamentally transforming the character of the Civil War into being about freedom. We have to remember that the Civil War was not started to free the slaves. It was started when the Southern states seceded from the Union and the Northern states fought to keep the Union together. It wasn't until about halfway through the war that Lincoln saw the bigger picture and signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Between 1820 and 1861, anti-slavery sentiment had risen across America, but the abolitionists were sadly few in number and had little access to political power. As a group, they also didn't always share the same beliefs about the future of African Americans, so their tactics often varied or even competed. While the American Anti-Slavery Society published the horrors of slavery, the radical abolitionists sought political power and endorsed anti-slavery candidates, and others, such as Harriet Tubman and John Brown, took more direct action in their communities. By 1860, slavery had splintered the nation along regional lines, so when we got to electing a new president that year, instead of the two political parties, four political parties ran candidates for president, two from the South and two from the North, which meant that Republican Abraham Lincoln won the 1860 election with less than 40% of the popular vote and without winning one Southern state. News of his victory caused many Southern states to secede from the United States. According to the African American History Museum in Washington, D.C., Abraham Lincoln had always been against slavery, believing it was unjust and placed too much power in the hands of wealthy men. But he just wasn't sure if African Americans should have United States citizenship. Lincoln began the Civil War believing that African Americans should be sent out of the country after becoming free. But over time, his views changed, in part credited to his relationship with Frederick Douglass. By the end of his life, he was speaking in favor of black voting rights. Slavery wasn't actually abolished in the United States until almost two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, with the passage of the 13th Amendment in the Senate in April 1864 and in the House on January 31, 1865. Juneteenth is therefore a commemorative holiday that celebrates the day in 1865 when the winners of the Civil War arrived in the last town in the South to ensure enslaved people were free. Over the years, Juneteenth has been called Freedom Day, Emancipation Day, Black Fourth of July, and the Second Independence Day. So as someone smarter than me said, don't think of Juneteenth as competing with the Fourth of July. Think of it as completing it, because none of us are free unless we're all free. So happy Independence Day, no matter what date you celebrate. At the end of the day, America was founded to be a nation that represents freedom and liberty a democratic ideal that the rest of the world could look to for inspiration. And if it doesn't feel like that right now, then I recommend it's time we get down to work. As President Obama recently said in his interview with Christina Amapour, democracy is not self-executing. It depends on the engagement of the citizens and an active mobilization of people around the belief of self-governance, the rule of law, the independent judiciary, and the free press, and all the civic institutions that go into making a democracy work. He goes on to say it's indisputable that a combination of forces have put enormous strains on American democracy, but that we're not alone. 
We've seen a backlash against democratic ideals around the world. Democracy is under threat everywhere. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Obama says democracy and the values of liberty and freedom will only win if we fight for it. But we have to acknowledge that our existing democratic institutions are creaky and they need to reform. In that, I couldn't agree more. Now, let's take a quick break and thank the sponsors who are supporting this episode. And we'll be back with our first set of Ask Me Anything questions right after this. You know what they didn't have on the first 4th of July? Temperature regulating bedding. Well, they didn't have mattresses either, so yay for progress and yay for miracle made bedsheets. Did you know that temperature has one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you're someone who wakes up too hot or too cold, then I would highly recommend you check out Miracle Made Sheets. Inspired by NASA, something else they didn't have in the 1700s, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics to make temperature regulating bedding so you get to sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. The silver-infused sheets also prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, allowing them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. So on top of getting a better night's sleep, you're also doing less laundry. Plus, Miracle-Made sheets are really nice. They're soft and they're comfortable, and they feel just as luxurious as the bed sheets people use in five-star hotels. So try it for yourself by going to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. And if you order today, you'll save 40% off. And with the promo code politicsgirl, you get three free towels and an extra 20% off. That's a steal. And Miracle is so confident that you're going to love their product that they've backed it with the 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, they'll give you a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Manicora Honey, but more specifically by our jar of Manicora Honey, which comes to us from Colin, one of the Manicora's beekeepers. Now I know that because every batch of their Manuka honey comes with a unique QR code on every jar so you can verify where the honey comes from and who got it for you. Did you know that the best honey in the world comes from New Zealand? They're like the bee colony superstars. And in the remote forests of New Zealand, there's a specific group of bees who feed on the nectar of the Manuka tree, making a super honey. Manuka honey is called super honey because of its unique combination of antioxidants and prebiotics, including a natural antibacterial compound called MGO that only comes from the bees harvesting the nectar from that specific tree. My husband, Sean, who's a real honey connoisseur, is really enjoying the MGO 600 plus grade honey. He loves the flavor and creamy caramel texture and believes it's an incredible addition to his morning smoothies. Manicora honey is available in a range of easy to use formats, including squeeze bottles and compostable honey sticks. If you head to manicora.com slash politicsgirl or use the code politicsgirl, you'll automatically get a free pack of honey sticks, a $15 value with your order. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash politicsgirl or use the code politicsgirl to get a free pack of honey sticks. You haven't tasted honey like this before, so indulge and try some honey with superpowers from Manicora. Maybe you'll even get a batch from Colin as well. And now, on to the AMAs. One of the things Obama said in his interview is that he remains optimistic about American democracy because of the young people he meets around the world. He says young people still believe in the fundamental dignity and worth of the individual and that they deserve to have agency in determining what their lives are going to be like. His comment both reminds us of Thomas Paine's words about the worth of the individual and leads me into my first Ask Me Anything question. 
So the question is, knowing what you know about American politics, how can you possibly be positive about America's future? (laughs) Okay, so I'm positive about America's future because I know that despite the loud and hateful minority who seem to get all the airtime, they're only about 25% of the country at best. These are the people that would strip us of our vote and turn us into some sort of Christian fascist theocracy, who would dictate uh, what we can learn and read and teach, who would decide who we're allowed to be and who we're allowed to love. These are the people who preach the eradication of trans people and want to force women to stay in bad marriages and stay pregnant against their will. And these people are powerful, but they're scared. They're scared of losing power, scared of change, scared of progress, scared of equity. They're scared of the electorate. And I know that with work and effort and turnout, we can defeat them because ultimately they're the minority. They know that. I just want other people to know that. The majority of people in this country believe in fundamental human rights, in the rule of law, in democracy, meaning one person, one vote, and that your vote should count. And every day more of those people are waking up to the reality of where we really are as a country. For a long time, I think most people didn't think it mattered that no matter what happened, it was all going to be fine. But if the past six years and everything that came out of it has taught us anything, it's that it won't all be fine, right? The car doesn't stay on the road if we're asleep at the wheel. And I think that's why the concept of woke scares conservatives so much. I mean, how much have they gotten away with while we weren't paying attention? And now we're paying attention and that scares them and it encourages me. Like Obama, I feel like I have great faith in the intelligence and knowledge of the younger generations. In the last couple of elections, young people have turned out to vote in record numbers, to vote for a party who believes in bodily autonomy and human rights and a world that would fight against racism and bigotry rather than encouraging it. The statistics are great. I mean, 61% of voters aged 18 to 24 and 65% of voters aged 25 to 29 voted for Democrats in the last midterms. Young women in particular voted for Democrats at 72%. And that's not really a huge surprise when the alternative is going to strip them of the rights to their own bodies and their decisions and even their lives. The fact of the matter is, our younger generations are the most educated, the most critically thinking, the most self-aware generations in history. They see the writing on the wall and they know the direction we're headed isn't good. And they're not willing to give the Republican Party the benefit of the doubt that the older generations have always done. They're not deceiving themselves into thinking that both parties are still operating in good faith and they're not actively benefiting from the system that even Democrats of the past have benefited from just by playing along. And they're not alone. I mean, I'm in my 40s, right? I have no interest in returning to this bigoted, homophobic, xenophobic, racist behavior of the past. A lot like the youth of America who grew up with everything from will and grace to euphoria, I want nothing to do with that kind of narrow-minded, bigoted world. I have optimism for America because I know the majority of us have no interest in telling people what religion they have to be, or telling women how they can dress, or teachers what they can teach. I know the majority of us think that forcing anyone to stay pregnant against their will is horrendous, and would never choose a rapist's rights over a victim's rights. Despite what we hear from the lobbying arm of American corporations and the politicians that serve them, the majority of Americans care about workers' rights, and they believe that people deserve to be paid a livable wage. They believe the government should be looking out for its people, not deciding who deserves rights and who doesn't. The majority of our countrymen and women aren't anti-immigrant. They're not anti-gay. They're not anti-intellectual. In fact, 
it is my belief that most of them would see that kind of behavior as the antithesis of what they believe America, land of the free, home of the brave, with Lady Liberty on her doorstep is supposed to stand for. And I think the more people we get talking about that, the better off we'll be. Look, I understand that it can feel scary and depressing and feel like the issues surrounding us are too big to even get our heads around. But the more of us who dial in rather than checking out, the more of us who are willing to put in the work to fight back, to make change and ask for what we need and not just take what we can get, the stronger we'll all be. The more of us who care and put pressure on those in power to change what needs to be changed, the more of a difference we'll be able to make. I mean, as Obama said, our institutions are creaky and they need reform. I mean, I just think for a long time, the majority of us let the country go wherever the powers that be wanted us to go because it was just easier and we thought we were safe in America. But now we look around and we see we're not. We can see what happened after the reversal of Roe. We see the changes that are being made to our school curriculums. We see the rise of anti-women and anti-gay and anti-trans sentiment around the country. We see the growing anti-Semitism and the banning of books. And I think that we recognize it's only if we acknowledge these issues that we can ever hope to solve them, right? Problems don't disappear just because you look away from them. They only become bigger and harder to fix. I always say not paying attention to politics doesn't mean politics doesn't affect you. It means you can't affect it. And I think a lot of people get that now. And I think that's why the Republicans are trying so hard to steal our votes and do Hail Mary pass after Hail Mary pass to try and rig themselves into ultimate power. But I think they're going to lose. And I think the more of us who know that, the better off we'll be. Think about the kind of world you want to live in, the kind of world you want your children and grandchildren to live in, and then work towards that. Yeah, I know it's going to take effort. But my God, what a reward. (laughs) But what about the people who are lost to us? The people who seem brainwashed or who are brainwashed by right-wing media and propaganda and politicians? What do we do about them? Well, that leads me right into the second question. How do we reach the people who only consume right-wing media? With a quarter to a third of the country giving up on democracy, how do we even begin to reduce that number? It's a good question, an important one. Right off the bat, I would say it's definitely not one-third of the country who's given up on democracy. I know it probably feels like that because the people who have abandoned democracy because it no longer serves them have a lot of power. And in the places they have power, they're passing as many laws as possible to make it as hard as possible for those who might disagree with them to have their voice heard. But again, they are still the minority. A 2020 Gallup poll found that 25% of Americans identify as Republicans, 31% identify as Democrats, and 41% consider themselves independent. So if you take that 25%, you still have to consider that not all of them are ride or die, stop the steal, going down with the ship mega Republicans. In fact, a lot of traditional conservatives are feeling politically homeless right now. The mega candidates might win primaries, but they struggle in general elections because they're so extreme. And that's not going to get any better for them the further they go down this authoritarian rabbit hole, which is why they need to cheat to win (laughs) and why things like gerrymandering and voter suppression and election tampering are so important to them. I do think that there are certain people in America that we just can't reach who really are 100% in the tank for fascism or fascistic behavior. People who would prefer a strongman leader who told them that they're good and other people are bad. There are definitely people who are actually racist and bigots and don't have the will or even the ability to change. 
There are people who just love to watch the people they hate suffer. And a lot of them believe America is a white Christian nation and they're not going to bend on that. And we just have to accept that we are not reaching those people, that those voters and the representatives who support the ideals of those voters just have to be defeated. And we have to do that in the next couple of elections, or that group will amass too much power that defeating them will have to include violence, which I think is something that we would all like to avoid. Ultimately, though, I don't think we should be wasting our time focusing on those lost people. I think our attention would be better spent on those who aren't paying attention. I did a rant recently uh, in response to someone writing me and saying, what can I even do? I have no power. And I was saying to them, that's just not true, right? Take Florida, for example. The Republican legislature drew gerrymandered maps to favor their party. Ron DeSantis ignored those maps and drew even more gerrymandered maps. When he was rightfully accused of cheating, which of course what is what he was doing, uh, the case went all the way up to the Florida Supreme Court. But Ron had appointed the majority of justices on the court, so they ruled in his favor and those maps stood for the midterm elections. And yeah, that is some shady cheating bullshit. But what we need to remember is that Florida didn't have some insane red wave in the midterm that should make us all so worried and impressed with Ron DeSantis's popularity or his policies. Florida simply suppressed blue votes to make sure a lot of them weren't counted. And yeah, that feels depressing and it feels infuriating. And we know it's happening in other red states across America, but we would only be powerless if we were voting at 100%. If we had 100% registration and 100% voter turnout, and this was the result, then yeah, there would be no way to stop this kind of cheating and people would be right to feel demoralized. But we don't have 100% voter registration. We don't even have 100% turnout of registered voters. Some elections, the turnout is under 20%. Most elections are around 30%. Florida had a 40% turnout in the 2022 midterms. Of 17.5 million potential voters, just under 8 million people came out. So as I say in my rant, we aren't fucked. We're challenged. What would Florida's election result have looked like if 10, 20, 30% more people had come out? You want to make a difference? Sign up to register people to vote. Join Get Out the Vote efforts. Help make sure people go to the polls on election day. And for goodness sakes, talk about politics. Talk about freedoms. Talk about what you want from your government. Get people to understand what's on the line so they aren't as swayed by their idiotic media feeds or the misinformation they hear from people who are. We've been told to not talk about politics our whole life, and yet politics affects every single part of our lives, from how fast we can drive to if we live through a pandemic. Now politics is telling us if we get to live or die in a pregnancy. It's nuts. It's something we need to be talking about all the time. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be some militant political activist banging your fist on the dining room table, but it does mean you need to be taking the time to understand what's really going on in your country and sharing that information with your people, your family, your friends, your coworkers. We need to open people's eyes to how important who's in charge is and how much the policies they create really affect our lives. And as far as right-wing media, I think it comes down to regulation. We used to have something called the Fairness Doctrine, which was a policy created in 1949, which required those who had broadcast licenses to present controversial issues of public importance in a manner that was honest and equitable and balanced. And it was killed by the Reagan administration. And then things kind of went off the rails. 
That was the birth of right-wing radio, particularly Rush Limbaugh, and the media being allowed to only tell one side of the story. And then we had the birth of cable news, which didn't need the same broadcast license, and then entertainment journalism, and then this line between news and entertainment became blurred. We need to firmly define those lines again. It should be illegal to blatantly lie on television and social media. We need representatives to pass legislation to make companies responsible for the disinformation they disseminate and slander laws to be seriously beefed up in this country. I believe we need a truth in broadcasting law and a fairness doctrine for the new millennium. So what if your entire business model goes out the window with those new laws? That's too bad. Maybe you should have thought of that before you put your bottom line before the good of humanity. I believe we need more representatives in Congress and state houses who believe it should be illegal to lie to people and who will pass laws to make information deception a crime. Personally, I think social media companies should be liable if they allow blatant propaganda and lies to spread on their platforms. I can almost guarantee you if Meta was liable every time some sort of destructive piece of propaganda like Plandemic or A Thousand Mules was disseminated on their site, they would figure out a way for AI or their algorithm to stop it real fast. They're already picking and choosing which stories get traction based on the power of rage. So they already know how to do this. They just need to be financially inspired to do it right. But these kinds of possible solutions, they only come from electing leaders who have the courage and foresight to create these pieces of legislation. We need people in Congress who understand tech as we go into this new world of AI, just like we need people in government to understand science as we go into a world of climate change and technology. It ultimately all comes down to politics. I believe politics can truly be a force for good in the world if we engage and pick leaders who will allow it to be. Government could stop corrupt lying media on the left or the right. Government could stop companies from spreading disinformation online, just like they could stop corporations from poisoning our water and our air. But we need politicians who are working in the best interest of the people and not politicians who answer to their own egos or their own paycheck. It's all possible. We just need enough of us to care to elect enough people who also care to make it happen. As Thomas Paine said, a country can't work without a strong central government that protects the individual's rights. We just need to insist we have a government who will do that. So I guess don't think about it as reducing the number of people who consume right-wing media. Think of it as reducing the amount of lying media that's out there in the first place and increasing the amount of people in the electorate who don't vote into voters that will dilute that group of far-right people down to a negligible percent. I mean, as they say, you know, vote in numbers too big to manipulate. If we do that, we'll start seeing real change. Finally, the last question of the day, do you think Biden should be the nominee? Isn't he just too old? Uh, The quick answer to that is, yes, I do believe he should be the nominee. And sure, he's old, but honestly, who cares? (laughs) Look, I I think Americans actually just get too hung up on who the president is. I mean, maybe that's the Canadian in me, but the president is just one position in our government. Yeah, it's an important position. You want someone who represents us well, but it's not as important as we've made it out to be. What really matters is in a president is their values and their temperament and who they surround themselves with and who they hire, who's in their cabinet and if they have the power of Congress or not. The American president can't really do anything on their own except damage. 
I mean, sure, they can sign executive orders. Biden's already signed three EOs on reproductive health since Dobb was overturned to help protect access to abortion and contraception. But those can be overturned anytime by whoever the next president is. And if the president ever goes too far, they can always be impeached and removed by Congress. So what we should want is a president with strong morals and good hiring skills, a president who has vision and humility and knows what direction they want the country to go and then hires the smartest, best people to navigate us there. We need Congress. We need state houses. That's actually where our laws come from. I mean, if you want to protect voting rights, we need a Democratic president, yes, but we need a Democratic majority in the House and a Democratic majority in the Senate willing to, at the very least, suspend the filibuster to get it done. That's the same with codifying bodily autonomy into law or expanding the Supreme Court. We need a president who will sign those progressive and fair laws, but it's Congress that needs to pass it. If young leaders and fresh voices are what you want, a great place to start with that is state and local level. I mean, support the candidates that will fight to change the laws where you actually live, who will pass the laws that will make their ways through the country and into federal law. Change happens from the ground up. We don't believe it because we only talk about the top people, but it does. You have to build the foundations, not just expect to take over. That's why the Marianne Williamsons and the Andrew Yangs of the world have always kind of bothered me. I mean, why are you starting at the top job when you've never been in government before? You can't make real change from the presidency without Congress. And you can't get Congress on your side if you have no idea how the system works. You can have the best ideas in the world, but the only way they can be implemented in a constitutional republic that was set into motion by those men who adopted the Declaration of Independence on July 4th was to work with Congress or to overrule Congress and act as a dictator, which is what the Republicans are planning to do, and that's what we want to avoid. The best way to avoid that is a vote for Joe Biden, the sitting president with name recognition and a track record of positive policies that help the people. All this, oh, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. I held my nose last time and I'm not going to do it again. We need some new candidate. I mean, it just tells me that you care, but you don't understand how our government works or where we are sitting in history. I mean, the bottom line is America's in late stage capitalism with a corrupt Supreme Court on a knife's edge between autocracy and democracy. And we just can't afford to undermine our successful incumbent when the alternative is the twice impeached criminal ex-president or the man who's single-handedly turning Florida into a fascist dictatorship. Both of those people would destroy the country and democracy as we know it. At the end of the day, Joe Biden is a strong leader who has the kind of wisdom and gravitas we need at this time in history. He got more accomplished in two years than any president since FDR, not to mention in an increasingly cynical world, he's a good and decent man who surrounded himself with an incredible, talented, and yeah, very young staff. He understands what he's doing. He has thoughtful plans for the future that include women's rights and gay rights and workers' rights and voters' rights and higher minimum wage and lower healthcare costs and environmental protections. Joe Biden's foreign policy experience and humility gathered world leaders together to build a coalition to support democracy in Ukraine. NATO's never been stronger. Biden lowered our deficit. He lowered our unemployment. He raised our reputation around the world again. He can run on all of that. We don't need to replace him. We need to spend our time and money giving him a bigger majority in Congress so we can get more accomplished. Yeah, he's old. He talks old. He's like a goofy grandpa who talks slowly and says things like malarkey. Who cares? By every measurable metric, he's an excellent leader surrounded by excellent people. And he doesn't think he alone can fix it. 
If we didn't have lying propaganda networks and self-serving chaos agents in Congress constantly trying to tell us that he's some sort of demented evil pedophile out to ruin the country with his crime family, and you just looked at the facts of his presidency on paper, there would be zero debate that he was doing a bang-up job. I'm excited for the future of leadership in this country, but we're not getting any of those people if the Democrats lose in 2024. We'll regress faster than anyone can possibly imagine. Joe Biden is a great president, a good man, and he is certainly better than any alternative the Republicans could put up. And if you believe in democracy and you want to win, then how you feel about him is ultimately irrelevant. We need to pick our battles right now. And second-guessing Joe Biden right at this moment in time is a waste of our energy. He can win, and we need him to win. So that's it. A little history lesson and some questions answered. Thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. I can't promise I will always get to all of them, but I'll certainly make a concerted effort. Remember, if you want access to these AMA bonus contents in the future and you want the ability to ask your own questions, go to politicsgirl.com premium and pick a package. Now, go have a hot dog, watch some fireworks, and use your common sense. Until next week, PGA. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.